Good afternoon. I'll start with a short announcement. Just a reminder that tonight, the um, second sit after dinner is earlier. It's at 7.30 instead of 7.45. And at that time, there'll be some Q&A and some announcements. So please come. Please come to the 7.30 tonight. So the Buddha offered some it's a powerful teaching. It turns out to be pretty straightforward and something that we already know. And maybe that's what makes it powerful is because it points to something that we already know and recognize. And maybe it's uh, been implicit in what Anushka and I have been teaching, and, but maybe I'll just say explicit is that there are causes and conditions for what arises. And that includes causes and conditions for feelings of contentment, feelings of well-being, feelings of ease, feelings of peacefulness. These are an integral and an important part of our lives integral and important part of the path of practice. Sometimes we hear these teachings about anicca, dukkha, anatta. We think like, oh, it's all about suffering. What a bummer. (laughs) It's true, right? We have suffering in our lives, but we also need some well-being and contentment and gladness, joy, happiness, Of course, of course. And part of the reason why there's these teachings about suffering is so that we could get a little more savvy savvy about suffering and what is it that's taken away from the well-being and contentment piece. And so part of this practice is to discover for ourselves What are some of these causes and conditions that support suffering? Dukkha. What are some of these causes and conditions that support Sukha? There's a reason why these words uh, rhyme. But I won't give you a poly lesson now, but I'll just... Dukkha, Sukha, suffering and happiness. Both important just to know like what's giving rise to them. And then it's not enough to just simply know or, you know, understand this cognitive understanding or something that we arrive to through discursive thinking, but we're to like experience for ourselves. Oh yeah, I recognize going down this way doesn't really lead to more ease. But this way does. And Anushka, I appreciated last night when she said, and then you watch this slow train wreck happening when you say, like, oh, I know this doesn't lead to happiness, but I'm doing it anyway. This is part of the practice. There's, there's a way, it just takes time and this repetition to undo a lifetime of a pattern that's been created and reinforced. But don't underestimate every time we notice as an impact. We notice that this doesn't lead to well-being. This leads to more difficulties. This is exactly how the path unfolds. You're not doing it wrong if you can see yourself going down this way and yet it just leads to more suffering. So we just start to learn. There's a way in which our bodies and minds start to learn that's a little bit different than the discursive, obvious ways in which learning happens. We need both. Part of what's being pointed to or the possibility with a meditation practice, with getting quiet and simplifying, 
is this learning that's maybe a little, it's a different type of learning. And so in this way, right, the Buddha isn't proposing some abstract philosophical treatise that you have to adopt and believe, but the real encouragement here is to experience of this phenomenological way, like this to know, to understand things, not just by discursive, but to have it true in your experience. And so here's a short story that are in the suttas. And the, there's a story of there's a, a king. We have royalty here again. Often, uh, I appreciate this. I kind of like this, that royalty or uh, represent people who are not monastics, kind of like representing us. In some ways, right, all the pleasures we have available to us today compared to, you know, thousands of years ago might be considered royalty. So there's this royalty who um, renounced his, at that, when he was older, renounced being the leader and instead became a monastic. And while he was meditating, he would be saying, Oh, what happiness. Oh, what bliss. He would be saying this even if he was just outside under the trees or in this very simple hut. He would be saying out loud, you know, sitting there with his eyes closed and vocalizing, Oh, what bliss. And the other monks would hear him. And we can imagine maybe they got a little annoyed and and they talked amongst themselves, what's up with Badia? And they had decided, okay, well, surely he must be remembering, he must not be meditating and just be thinking about when he was the royalty and like all the what was available to him and that's not right. He should be meditating. So they went and told the Buddha. So then the Buddha goes up to Badia. This is his ordination name, Badia. And asks him, is it really true, Badia, that even in the wilderness or at the foot of a tree or in an empty dwelling, you frequently express this heartfelt sentiment? Oh, what bliss. Yes, Venerable sir, I do. But why do you do this? Formerly, when I was the king ruling the land, my guard was well organized. Within and without the royal compound, and within and without the city, and within and without the country. But although I was guarded and defended in this way, I remained fearful. I remained scared. I remained suspicious. I remained nervous. But these days, when I'm alone in the wilderness, at the foot of a tree, or in an empty dwelling, I'm not fearful. I'm not scared. I'm not suspicious. I'm not nervous. I live relaxed, unruffled surviving on alms and my heart free as a wild deer. It is for this reason that even in the wilderness or at the foot of a tree or in an empty dwelling, I frequently express this heartfelt sentiment, oh, what bliss. This was the opposite of what all the other monastics around him were thinking. It's when this king had simplified his life is when he found happiness. It was, even though he had everything, he also felt like he had more to lose. And he had to like take care of all the people guarding it, you know, make sure that they guarded it. And 
Wow, I mean, you can only just imagine what it must be. It's like a whole country. But this simplifying turned out to be like, oh, what a relief. I love this word. He lived unruffled, relaxed. So this practice is not about getting more and more and more. Right? This movement is about this kind of like letting go and this simplification, this kind of opening up and letting go, letting go. So it's not acquiring. We talk about cultivation, we talk about developing in this practice, so some wholesome qualities. But it's not like getting meditation badges, you know, like merit badges, I think like the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts sometimes do. It's not like getting these things that we can say, oh, okay, I did that, I got this. It's more about like this sense of cultivating or developing. And maybe I'll highlight that retreat centers provide simplicity for a reason. Your room's pretty simple. Meals, pretty simple. Options of things to do here, pretty simple. <laughs> sit, walk, <laughs> eat, <laughs> sit, walk, right? There's a reason. Because it can support this sense of Letting go supports a sense of you don't have to be maybe protecting so much or remembering what, what exactly to do. But there's this way that there can also be, when things are a simplicity, there can be also a sense of relief. Putting things down. Because it's so easy to complicate our lives. It's so easy, and there's a whole society, and there's so many industries that are out there helping you complicate it, as complicated as you like to get, and encouraging you to complicate it in so many different ways. Any way you can imagine. So... As we make this transition from retreat life, retreat experience, to this movement of leaving the retreat, we can look at simplicity as something that can help us with this integration, something that can, we can take with us. And simplicity, of course, shows up in so many different ways. For each of us, it'll mean something different. I remember when I first started with practicing, and it was really meaningful for me, going to all these meditation talks, and I started doing some Buddhist, um, I'm sorry, some sutta study. Sutta study is not required. It's just something that is kind of, that I really enjoyed, and it was really meaningful for me. And there's all these stories. They're not all stories. Some of them are just generally teachings. But, but it seems like there's an awful lot of monastics. And I felt like, do I have to ordain? I felt like if I'm going to do this, serious about this Buddhism thing, and I really want to find this freedom, do I really have to shave my head? <laughs> Become a monastic and, you know, live uh, living on alms and... I really had this idea, and it was a fear. You don't have to ordain. You do not have to become a monastic, just in case any of you were feeling like that. But some people, they feel, they feel a calling. They feel like that's something that they want to do. So if this is something that calls you, but if it's not something that calls you, but instead frightens you, <laughs> You don't have to do it. There are plenty of people out here that are as lay people, Anushka and I, right, who have found our 
the Dharma being a central part of our lives. You don't have to become a Dharma teacher. There's a way in whatever your life is that you're doing with the Dharma can really be an integral part of your life. And one way is this simplification. Because there's a way in which we can just notice that being present with whatever whatever's happening, whether it's we're in a conversation with others, whether we're taking care of our family, taking care of ourselves, whether we're just be present, whatever it is we're doing, that has a quality of simplicity. I'm just here cooking this meal, chop, chop, chop with the carrots. I'm just here talking, I'm feeling my feet on the ground, I'm being present, I'm listening, but I'm still present, I'm hearing what the other person is saying, I'm not rehearsing exactly what I'm going to say, I'm just going to be here with what they're saying, and maybe allow a moment of pause, it's not the usual way we always speak, but before I speak. This is a way to simplify. Mindfulness of the body. Wow. This is a way that we can help us stay grounded and present and simple. And as a way to bring mindfulness of the body as we leave the retreat container and go back to whatever is waiting for us when we leave here, Sometimes I'm often recommending just, if you can't be present for anything else, maybe you can bring mindfulness to the sensations of the feet. This often is so simple, and it's literally and maybe figuratively can help us feel grounded. Because have you noticed it's the mind, right, that we can get lost into all these thoughts and all these complications and stories and... All this incessant planning. And maybe I'll say planning is helpful. Like we need to do this and we need to solve problems and we need to think about things. Of course we do. I'm not saying don't do this, right? That would be ridiculous. Planning, solving problems, figuring things out, remembering the grocery list. These things are really important, and we need to do them. They're helpful. Until they're not. There's a way, right? We just find ourselves rehearsing and going through it over and over and over. This is what our minds do. So we can just recognize when there's this sense of just going over and over and over. It's no longer helpful to, okay, i got to remember to get pick up some milk and some bread on the way home. Or rehearsing again and again and again the planning that we're going to do. Maybe it's helpful sometimes, but just notice when it has this quality of being done again and again. Or when there's like this explosive quality of thoughts, like, wow, there's like a whole novel that we write in our minds, you know, based on the discomfort in the knee, because it reminds us of that bicycle accident that we had when we were young. And like, I wonder whatever happened to that kid that I used to play with. And uh, they seemed pretty smart. Maybe they're doing this now. Maybe I'll remember to look them up on Facebook when I get back, you know, like all this stuff. Right. And then a whole story happens. It turned out that the Buddha had a word for this. It's called papancha. I kind of even like this word, papancha. Sometimes it gets translated as mental proliferation. This, uh, like I said, the explosion of thinking, or maybe this propagation of thinking, or this ideas that kind of lose touch with reality and just uh, go on and on. And part of meditation practice is to just become a little bit sensitive to this experience of papancha, to recognize it, but also to notice the feeling of it. 
then notice what is it like when we're completely lost in our minds, the head, no longer present, no longer necessarily so aware of what's happening. And is there a way that we can notice and come back to whatever we can come back to in that moment? Maybe it's just feet on the ground. Maybe mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of the body isn't even available at that time. You just come back, feet on the ground. Chances are that's available. Unless maybe you're swinging on a swing set or... I don't know, there's other places. But then just feel the air brushing by your feet as you're going on the swing set. Or if you're lying in bed, maybe is there a way that... If you're under the covers or sheets, you can feel the pressure of the covers and the sheets on your toes. Whatever it is, there's something about bringing mindfulness to the feet that can be really grounding and stabilizing. So that's one way. So to notice have this greater sensitivity to when papancha is happening. And then to come back to whatever's readily available feelings on the feet or some sensations in the body. This is a way that points to simplicity rather than the complications, all the variations that are happening in the mind. Just come back here, the sensations of the feet. It interrupts the momentum. We have been talking about this a lot, right, on this retreat, kind of like interrupting the momentum and coming back. So that's part of simplicity. But simplicity also is uh, part of this, a, bar, a larger part of uh, the Buddhist practice. There's this, uh, maybe I'll just say, it often gets translated at a, as a word, but like as soon as a I hear this, or certainly when I heard this word before, I thought, oh, and there's kind of like a, maybe I'll describe it before I, there's this, right, I've, this uh, way of letting go, or cutting down, or releasing, or giving up, I'm doing this with my hands, right, kind of like this movement, and we can think of it as, um, like there's a way in which we can be with our experiences, that way that we can hold on to things, which is really like making a fist around whatever this is, an actual object, a view, um, a relationship, a person. We can be holding on really tightly. So whatever this striker represents, And there's a way which, okay, maybe you can do this, but I'm just telling you actually right now, I can feel there's a little stress here in my wrist. I can feel this is getting tiring (laughs) to do this, to be holding on. So a little bit of suffering associated with this, but we might be so used to it that we don't even notice holding on, holding on, holding on. But while my hand is holding on to this, It's not available for anything else, really. Can't, with this hand, I can't reach out a helping hand to somebody else. I can't, like, maybe receive something from somebody else. This hand can't be doing that. It's really tired now. (laughs) So, is there a way that we can do something like this? Just open the hands, the palms up. The fingers are no longer clenched around this. Still have the striker in my hand. It's just a different way to hold the striker. It's not tiring. Maybe there's a way that it's even a little bit easier to put down. Here's the beauty of this. What's being pointed to with this practice is we don't have to get rid of everything, whatever this striker represents. We're just going to hold it in a different way. 
And holding these things in a different way makes it easier to put down and maybe pick up something else that's needed. So this is a way in which we're shifting from this holding, holding to to with an open palm. Not because, I don't know, we think that we should. It's because there's more freedom this way. There's more ease. There's more peacefulness to just hold something this way. So it's not a question of self-control or denial or like uh, um, self-denial. It's more just because it's easier. And it makes just makes our life better to hold things this way. So in the Buddhist teachings, there's this pointing to this idea of simplification and no longer really holding on to things like as tight as we can or even really tightly. This falls under this uh, word we might use, nekamam and poli, is uh, renunciation. But when we say this word, it's always like, ugh, like who wants to renounce things? Right? This is not something that's culturally supported at all. <laughs> right? Instead, we have this idea, keep up with the neighbors or whatever, you know, the neighbors are doing or there's this sense of, you know, we've got to have more and more and more. I've I talked about this a little bit, right? Or there might be a way in which we think that um, renunciation or letting go is, uh, or simplicity even, something that we don't want to do because there might be a way in which the concept or the notion, the idea of renunciation, simplification, softening our grip, it can be, the idea of it can be associated or confused with or conflated with this idea of aversion or repression. We might think that, okay, there's only two things. You either hold on to it tightly or you throw it away. You either hold on to it tightly or you pretend it doesn't exist. But what's being pointed to here, right, is a third option. We hold on to what's helpful and maybe we like put down what's not helpful. So another reason why this whole idea of uh, renunciation might like just not feel right or we might uh, feel uncomfortable with it is because it often gets confused with this ideas of good and bad or purity and impurity or something like this. And so there's this sense in which we confuse the renouncing of the clinging, the grabbing, the holding is what's being renounced. It's not the objects themselves necessarily. We might discover that uh, actually we don't need another striker. But there's a way in which we might think that uh, we have to let go because the objects are pure or the objects are impure. Instead, we're looking at the way that we are interacting with the objects, the way that we're holding them. That's what's being pointed to. And then maybe another way when we hear this word renunciation might feel like, no, thank you. Which is okay, you're allowed to do that. But letting go can be frightening. There's a way in which clinging gives us a sense of control the sense of like, okay, I'm going to keep this and the sense of taking care of ourselves and if I just hold on to this, everything's going to be fine. Can we honor that and respect that? It can be frightening. 
And so part of the quality of renunciation is kind of like how this king in this story was saying, oh, what happiness. Is this, there should be a sense of relief, a sense of maybe delight or some happiness. Like, oh, wow, okay, let go of that. That wasn't helpful. It's now been put down or the clinging has stopped. If it feels like somebody has to pry your fingers off, maybe it's not the time. Maybe it's maybe it's not the right object to let go of at that time. Right? This is a movement towards simplicity. This is a movement towards well-being. It's not a movement of trying to beat ourselves up and do the most difficult thing or something like this. There's a way there can be this oppressive feeling like, oh, I can't have this. No, that's not the direction we're going. Instead, renunciation is a movement of the heart. It's, a, it's not a form of denial or asceticism. Some of you who know the life story of the Buddha, right? He tried this, uh, before he became awakened, this extreme denial, this extreme asceticism. And it didn't work. That's not the direction we're going. So instead, there's this uh, quote in the Dhammapada, this collection of verses attributed to the Buddha. If by giving up a lesser happiness one could experience greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser and behold the greater. So when I was growing up, my parents, as a way to, kind of, uh, I don't know, as a treat, for me and my brother, would uh, we would have... Uh, chocolate, Hershey's chocolate they would give. And I liked the Mr. Good bar. My brother liked just the plain Hershey bar. And this was like a real treat that we would have chocolate. It was like on special occasions or something like this. Particular settings. And it wasn't until uh, my early 20s that I tasted chocolate from Belgium. Belgium. Bel- I, Belgium. So I tasted Belgium chocolate. Belgian chocolate. Phew. I don't forget these words right. <laughs> wow, we. Belgian chocolate is very different than the Mr. Good Bar that I had grown up with. It wasn't a hardship for me to give up eating Hershey chocolate. <laughs> So in the same way, when we realize, oh yeah, okay, there's something better, it's either this natural letting go that happens of something different. And part of the reason why we come on retreats is for us to feel into what's possible with some simplicity, with some quiet, with some momentum of meditation practice, so that we get a taste, we get a glimpse of maybe what's possible. And then we might start to the other things in our life might start to look different or feel different in comparison to what we have a taste of here on retreat. But I also want to say, sometimes on retreat there's so much dukkha that we're happy to get off of retreat and uh, we're not ever going to go on one again. <laughs> I My very first retreat was awful. And I swore I would never go on retreat again. <laughs> Absolutely. It was only through serious peer pressure that I went on a second one. <laughs> and then my first long retreat, really long, months long, I wrote a note. Dear future self, <laughs> I literally wrote this. Never go on retreat again. <laughs> Here I am. It turned out not to, you know, there was, it's how it was. But, you know, months later I could see the fruits of what happened. It was really meaningful. 
So I'm talking about, you know, sometimes here we touch into something beautiful, and some retreats we touch into a lot of dukkha. I don't, I kind of want, I want to normalize that. And maybe retreats, some retreats are a complete mixture. And it's often not until months later, or maybe, you know, we don't know how long, that we really start to understand or appreciate something, uh, maybe a new understanding or something, whatever it is, the fruit, I'm using this general word, the fruits of the retreat. But there's something about this renunciation as this movement of the heart, this kind of like this natural letting go that can happen that should bring this sense of unburdening sense of joy. Maybe you don't have to, like the king, oh, what bliss <laughs> while you're meditating, right? Maybe it's not that extreme. Maybe there's just a, you know this quiet sense of, oh yeah, that doesn't bother me as much. I used to, when the people in traffic would like cut me off, I used to yell at them, and now I realize I'm not yelling as much. <laughs> That's how it starts. And there's this way that this uh, this letting go helps undermine this movement that we need to have more, 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 more. We start to appreciate that, uh, oh yeah, there's this, um, it doesn't, you know, more doesn't necessarily bring more safety, more ease, holding on tightly. But we need to have the experience again and again of, of this kind of letting go. Because there's a way that getting this more and more and more that's implicit and may, and rarely clearly seen is this sense of lack that's getting reinforced by this, I'm trying to get more, more experiences, more objects, more anything. There's this, it's, it supports this sense of, I don't have enough, the sense of insufficiency that we don't notice, that's often completely unseen. We have this entire billions of dollars spent on like advertising, marketing, to make you feel like you don't quite have enough. And have this, and then you'll be happy, right? But there's this way of more of anything really reinforces that. And so this renunciation, kind of this letting go, reinforces this sense of it's okay. It's okay a certain amount of contentment, a certain amount of feeling like it's sufficient. And this quiet way, that gets reinforced with this letting go, this uh, generosity, reinforces a sense of contentment. And contentment often feels like a booby prize, like contentment. I want this bliss. I want this happiness. It turns out this radical contentment, this sense of no more seeking is needed, is really what we want. To put down the seeking. And so this letting go really supports that sense of contentment. Contentment supports letting go, right? They definitely are together. So there's this, maybe I'll share this poem, this short poem. It's by David White, well-known poet. He's uh, also a sometimes Zen practitioner. And in this poem, he's supporting to this mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of movement, noticing one's breath, walking carefully. He's also pointing to some investigation 
in this poem, there's this request to stop what you are doing, and then there's questions. And so part of this practice that Anushka and I have been pointing to is a little bit of this investigation, like what's really happening now? Not so much that we have to figure it out, but it's more like this opening, this the questioning, not the answering, the questioning, what's really going on right now? And then in this poem, is kind of like recognizing the question of, is this leading towards contentment and ease, peacefulness, or away from contentment, ease, and peacefulness? So here's the poem. It's called Sometimes. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests. Conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. Request to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you and questions that have no right to go away. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. So then David... White, he writes a little bit about this poem, and I appreciate so much. He says that this poem is an encouragement like for this stopping what you're doing so that you can drink from a deeper well. So that you can drink from a deeper well. And maybe this well has some questions. But he's saying that this, the invitation with this poem is the understanding that almost always you are tiptoeing into the next moment, which you don't fully understand. You think you understand it, but actually what is going to occur is unannounced. So it seems like even his description of the poem is a poem itself, this idea of that you are the understanding that almost always you are tiptoeing into the next moment, which you don't fully understand. You think you understand it, but actually what is going to occur next is unannounced. And the questions that have no right to go away, if we are sincere in asking the eventual answer, the eventual answer, right? There might not be there immediately, the eventual answer will give us both a sense of coming home and as well as a surprise. The eventual answer, a sense of coming home and a sense of surprise. So this is different than figuring everything out. It's maybe honoring and respecting the activity of questioning And to recognize that stopping what you're doing so that you can drink from a deeper well. And the stopping what we're doing is another way maybe to say simplifying or maybe there's a sense of renouncing, renunciation. Like, okay, I don't need to do this right now or I don't need to hold on to tight this right now. And then with that, will come some spaciousness and literally and figuratively in the mind and the body in our physical space. And 
there's a way in which our lives are so often they're crammed full of literal stuff or things that we're supposed to do. And there's a way that there's a part of us that yearns for this, say, this spaciousness. There's a way, and sometimes we just like feel burdened by all this weight and pressure of the busyness and the objects and the chasing around, and because everything we have somehow needs to be taken care of in some kind of way. So this renunciation helps support some of this spaciousness, and it also helps support some of the sense of confidence, because sometimes our lack of confidence is where we that we have this lack and this confidence in our ability to feel okay because we are not feeling okay is wrapped up in our connection with things and goods and acquiring. Maybe we feel like we don't have enough confidence to get enough stuff or there's a way in which kind of like letting go is we also kind of like builds confidence that we can be okay, less dependent on the outer circumstances, less dependent on having everything be precisely right or the right objects, the right whatever, right people, the right apartment, the right job, the right car. So this movement of simplicity, renunciation, letting go is definitely a way, it's part of Buddhist practice, and we can bring with us into what's going to happen tomorrow when we leave this retreat. This isn't such a common question. It's a natural question. How can I bring part of this retreat with me? How can I bring the fruits of this practice? How can I practice in my life? And part of it is this pointing towards simplicity, and maybe there's some things that we don't need that are extra. And I'd like to talk a little bit about one particular area of our lives that maybe is worthwhile to point to. And this is the way in which we use technology. I love technology, don't get me wrong, right? Many of us probably do. When I put together my talks, you see I have up here, I have notes, and I've gotten pretty savvy with these word processors, and I have like, okay, this is the heading, and this is a subheading, and bullets, and page numbers, and certain, I have this whole thing down, right? (laughs) I have a good friend that uh, we decide, okay, we're going to do this particular thing every day for a month, and we text each other every day. Did you do this? I did it. Yes, and it just makes me so happy when I get this text from my friend or when I'm texting my friend once a day, and we're supporting each other in this way. It's great. Sometimes I use my phone in a way that's not so helpful. And so an encouragement is to look at the way that we use technology. Can we take advantage of all the benefits? It's amazing, right? What technology offers us, but can we avoid some of the associated harms, things that aren't helpful? Can we eliminate what isn't helpful, what's not valuable for us? So... Part of that is maybe to reduce digital distraction. I'll just... Right? Technology is designed to be distracting. That is its purpose for so much of it, right? There's a bazillion... I shouldn't say a bazillion. There are plenty of people, right? A lot of money, a lot of really smart people who have been designing technology to distract us. They want, you know, they need views. It's fine. That's a business model. They're allowed to do that. But it doesn't mean that we have to always allow ourselves to get distracted. So just to notice ourselves. 
what we're doing with our technology. I looked up the statistics in 2000. And last year, the average smartphone user checked their, defi- their device 96 times a day. That's a lot. 96 times. The average person that lives in America will spend at least five hours on their phone a day. I don't know if this, if you guys are the average smartphone users, but five hours is a lot. And we're often saying, well, I would meditate if I had more time. <laughs> and 85% of smartphone users will check their device while talking to their friends or family. Let's see, I've heard that there's a term for this um, fubbing, phone snubbing. Kind of like when you look at your phone, you're sending a message to the person you're talking to, right? That what you're talking about is not nearly as important as this little thing I have in my hand here. Another thing that uh, I learned, which was really um, surprising, but this is a research experiment that's been done over and over and over. So this is definitely has been verified. When I describe the experiment, you'll see why it was done over and over, because it's so easy to do. They asked some people to sit down and share a meal, have their phone, and put it face down on the table. Never look at it, but the phone face down on the table. They are more distracted. They're always looking at this phone. I was looking at it, thinking about it. They're not paying as much attention to the other person than if the phone is completely out of view. They're not looking at their, they're not picking up their phone. It's just that it's there. It's this, you know, come hither, you know, this kind of uh, thing. It's beckoning. It's a portal to this fantastic world. Just pick me up. <laughs> or, oh yeah, that question we're talking about, let's Google it. And then, or let's schedule the next thing, and then we just spend all our time, you know, like this or something. So, just an invitation if you're going to be with somebody else, put the phone just out of view. It turns out it makes a difference if it's even in view, whether you're looking, whether you're handling it or not. Something else to about distraction. Whoops, I actually need this. I need to know what time it is. <laughs> Maybe there's some apps on your phone that are particularly sticky that you just find yourself, you want to be looking at them. What would it be like if you uninstalled them? You can install them later, but just to have an experiment, what would it be like to uninstall these? I have a, I set my phone so that it's um, black and white, only black and white, every 100% black and white for most of the time, and there's only certain hours of the day in which it's in color. Turns out this makes a difference. It's, you know, they've done so many studies on which colors are the ones that are the most enticing and distracting. Guess what colors are used on the apps or the little, the icons? So here's something to just do. Maybe install some apps. Maybe have your phone be black and white. Maybe move things off of the home screen or something like this, right, to do things because, right, these apps, uh, you know, they're designed to be distracting. And so can you get notifications from people, not products? So change your notifications just from people that you want to hear from. That's, you know, that that are, that can be a support for you. And if you find yourself like, oh, I've been on my phone for all this time. I hear of scrolling, doom scrolling, you know, going through or this. There's something you can do like, oh, when there's something like wakes you up, is to just feel the smoothness and the heaviness. This is an object. It's an actual thing 
we tend to think like, oh, it's a portal into something else. But just remind yourself it's an object that has, and there's this experience to hold this in your hand. This can be a way that can really help. And then maybe you can put it down, something like this. But just a reminder that, you know, our phones, we tend to forget that they're actually things. But maybe you can also just be mindful of that experience of, oh, I just, just, just this one more thing. What does that feel like? Feel this urge. And sometimes you see how I'm, when I'm talking about it, I'm like leaning forward in my body. This is the way it is, right? It feels like a leaning forward. And then I loved this uh, expression by Cal Newport, somebody who kind of like talks about these things. He says like, you know, the app store wants your soul. (laughs) Yeah, so just recognize, maybe have some idea of like what's important for you, what supports your life, and then have apps that are supports your life and or support your values. I'm not saying you have to get rid of all technology. I'm just saying, you know, just think about what's helpful for you. And what maybe and I gave a talk about on simplicity and renunciation, not because you have to get rid of things, but just because it's a support for finding greater ease, peacefulness, contentment, what we're all so looking for. So each of us will make our own decisions, what makes sense for us, for our lives regarding our phones or our technology. But is there a way that you can maybe focus on a few things, the technology that supports your life? And then here's the tricky part happily miss out on everything else. Happily miss out on all those other things that are there. So the stuff about technology won't be relevant for everybody here. There are some people like, well, I don't use it so much. But there will be some people who do use it a lot. So maybe if technology in particular isn't um, relevant for you, just you could ask yourself, you know, what's in your life that... Because it supports your values and what's important. And is there a way that there might be some more simplicity or some letting go, some softening? And just ask ourselves, does this really make me happier? Does it really make me more productive in a way that supports my life. And then maybe we can put down some of those things don't that don't support us as best we can. As best we can. The last thing I want to do is stand up here with this oppressive, you know, do something. Right? We're, we will, we're all finding our way with this. Let's sit just for a minute or so.
time for some simple walking. And then I'll see you back here at 7.30. Just in case that wasn't clear, there's still a sit that's at whenever it is after the, the one that's before the 745.